Say hello to a new era of mental health care. Cerebral is here to help you achieve your mental wellness goals with professional therapy and medication management support. 100% online. You'll experience the all-new Cerebral way, an innovative approach to mental wellness designed around you. You'll get a personalized treatment plan from a therapist, prescriber, or both in a safe and judgment-free space. Your cerebral therapist or prescriber will outline a customized plan with clear milestones along the way, so you can get to feeling your best. With Cerebral, you're not alone in your mental health journey. We're here to empower you to live a fulfilling life. So take that first step towards a brighter future and sign up today at Cerebral.com slash podcast and use code ACAST to get 15% off your first month. Offer only valid on monthly plans. Other exclusions may apply. Offer ends July 31st, 2024. See site for details. This episode of Politics Without the Boring Bits is sponsored by BT because BT means business. BT knows that businesses come in many shapes, sizes and guises from the person just starting out at their kitchen table to the biggest employer, which is why no matter what line of work you're in, they've got your back to help you succeed and do what you do best. No doubt connectivity is a must in Westminster and it's certainly helped us to get this episode created and distributed to you listening right now. BT already connects more than 1 million businesses and public sector organisations, offering secure and reliable connectivity. Nearly three quarters of people running a business or side hustle feel they couldn't do so without reliable broadband and mobile connectivity. That's why having connectivity you can count on is a must for business, whether it be facilitating multiple devices being connected at once or making team calls or guest Wi-Fi access for customers. BT's connectivity helps keep you and your customers happy. Whatever your business, BT's got your back. Search BT's got your back. Hello, you're listening to the Times Red Box Politics Podcast. Patrick Maguire here in for Matt Chorley for the next couple of weeks. And we're starting off with a brilliant podcast today, if I do say so myself. We're going to be talking about how you lose an unlosable election, lessons from around the world and across history for Sir Keir Starmer there. But first, it's time for The Columnists. The Columnists with Libby Rachie, Libby Purvis and Rachel Sylvester on Times Radio. Yes, time for Libby Rachie with Libby Purvis. Morning, Libby. Morning. And Rachel Sylvester. Morning, Rachel. Hi, Patrick. Great to have you both. How are you doing? Very well, thank you. I'm sorry if there's building. We've got builders at the moment. There's banging rather. <laughs> I thought that was I thought that was rapturous applause, Rachel, for another for another <laughs> searing insight. Yeah, yeah. You yeah. may hear meowing cats as well. It's all going. <laughs> a, a, a chorus of fans. Libby, any builders in today? <laughs> No, no, but the rain stopped here, which is nice. Oh, lovely, lovely. Uh, it is, uh, oh, it's, there's a blue sky for the first time in a while outside here. So, uh, yeah, hope springs eternal. Uh, anyway, let's, uh, let's get cracking, shall we? Liz Truss, it's a name uh, we hear surprisingly often given the way her premiership ended. Uh, this morning's Times reports that she's nominated one person for an honour every For every four days she was in office, 14 people are still on her resignation honours list, which is being vetted as we speak by the House of Lords Appointments Commission. And it could have been even longer, two people turning it down, uh, turning down the nomination by the former PM. Uh, Wisely, I would have thought. Uh, One source said they thought it would be humiliating to receive an honour from trust. Uh, Are they right, Rachel? Uh, I think so, yes. I think most voters would think that anyway. There seems to be more self-awareness among some of her aides than uh, in Truss herself. And it just reminds me, I bumped into someone who'd worked for her soon after her premiership 
crashed to a disastrous end. And they said she was the only woman in politics who had absolutely no imposter syndrome. And in fact, this former aide said she could have done with a bit more of it. There's that sense of, um, you know, there's a shamelessness to this, isn't there? She sort of crashed the economy, sent mortgages soaring, even Kwasi Kwarteng, her chancellor's um, paying more in his mortgage, we mm. read. Uh, and yet she thinks, you know, people who backed her and sucked up to her deserve an honour. Uh, do they deserve honours, Libby? And if we have to go on having these political appointments to the Lords, uh, then one per year of your premiership should be absolute maximum. Uh, it's been brought into such massive disrepute by Boris and now massive disrepute by Liz Truss. It's a disgrace. Uh, so I'm, I'm going to put you down as a maybe, Libby. Um, <laughs> no. No, no. Well, yeah, of course, of course. Um, it could have been worse, though. Truss has got 14 people on her honours list. Boris Johnson's list said to have been whittled down to 40 from almost 100. But the interesting thing, Rachel, is, you know, you speak to Labour people and while Gordon Brown early this year, you know, big report in which he said abolish the Lords, now we're already seeing that commitment being watered down slowly. I know I reported in the Times a couple of months ago that there's an acknowledgement in Labour circles that they'll probably need to appoint lots of peers in the interim uh, to make sure uh, they can pass legislation. The Sunday Times reported last week that uh, they're planning to abolish hereditary peers or rather new hereditary peers replacing hereditary peers who die off as an interim measure. There's no sign that despite the you know incredulity that stories like this, Liz Truss appointing peers... Uh, will uh, will provoke in people listening. There's no sign that actually big sweeping reform of the House of Lords is imminent, is there? No, and I've been reporting on Lords reform from since 1996, I think. <laughs> I was the Lords correspondent for the uh, Telegraph at the time. And, I, I, it, you know, even then it was being discussed. And the problem is nobody agrees on what should replace the House of Lords. Uh, and the peers themselves obviously don't want to be abolished. So you end up with this kind of stasis. But this is a slightly separate issue, I think, the giving of honours mm. by outgoing prime ministers uh, and also the use of honours as a sort of political um, bauble and reward um, for sycophancy. And I think that, you know, those two things could be separated out. You could say, actually, we're going to end this culture of cronyism in the laws but still uh, you know keep wait you, you don't have to wrap it all up with the entire reform of the laws so not too dissimilar to what you were suggesting libby if there's a need for political peers disentangle it from you know the period of the, the process rather of giving people you know bribes or inducements uh, for uh, political support giving a title and a sort of credibility and not least the attendance allowance uh, to the, to these uh, people who, who get the political uh, the, the sort of crony, crony appointments. And I think it's a disgrace. I mean, I think the scale of it makes it a disgrace. If there were only a very few, you know, if a prime minister really had to choose on leaving office after a decent spell of years, you know, who are the really valuable people and have the three or four or five, however many years have been there. But the, this idea that, you know, Liz Truss can sort of vogue in tank everything and then put up a lot of people for um, uh, honours you know, and, and, and attendance allowances, you know, which costs us money. Is, is, it just makes the country look so really disreputable. 
I mean, this is the problem. I mean, I agree with Rachel. We, you know, the lords have their uses. They really do. And, and good, intelligent, fantastic people, some of them. But it's been heavily mismanaged and nobody will reform it. I, I don't see I don't see the next government reform. I don't see anyone reforming it. You know, they, they've all got their mates who who want to get in. It's it's just, it's horrible. It's in what politicians call the too difficult box, I think, Lord Reform, as Rachel, <laughs> as Rachel was saying. Uh, also proving a very difficult political uh, issue over the past couple of years is A-level results and exam results. You know, obviously, systems scarred by the pandemic. About fi- uh, 50,000 teenagers next week set to miss out on top grades they would have achieved last year according to an education professor. Many school leavers like to be disappointed with their results, leading to a surge in appeals probably, according to his analysis. Grades are supposed to be returning to pre-pandemic levels, but this would lead to almost 100,000 fewer A and A star grades being awarded. Because Rachel, as the chair of the Times Education Commission, you can explain that, you know, during the uh, during the pandemic, grades were sort of corrected upwards to reflect the, uh, ref- you know, with teacher assessments to reflect the difficulty students has had. But now we're basically seeing the uh, seeing the hangover from that, aren't we? Yeah, exactly. And they're kind of downgrading them again, having uprated them all during the pandemic. And it can't go on that, you know, I think it was in 2021, nearly 45% of A-levels were either an A or an A-star. That's obviously absurd. You can't have that level of top marks going to so many students. So there is an adjustment and that is painful for those who suffer as a result. But I'd say actually there's a wider problem with the whole exam system and that students, children, young people aren't being judged in the round sufficiently. So on the Education Commission, we should, we said that A-levels should be replaced with a much broader baccalaureate, which would let you do humanities and sciences or vocational and academic subjects and also have some more emphasis on character with things like volunteering and creativity. So rather than this very narrow measure of success, which leaves lots of people feeling like failures, there ought to be this kind of much broader measure and system. And I remember speaking to Mary Beard, the Cambridge professor, who said that, um, you know, since she started teaching at Cambridge, the way in which students approach education has completely changed because Mm. the focus has been so much on exams. They now say, you know, how do I get a first? What do I do? What mark scheme do I have to tick? What box do I have to tick to get a first? She says, no, you have to think until your head hurts. And we've lost sight of that sense of education being something about intellectual endeavour. It's all about marks. I think so. I think it's a broader problem. What do you think, uh, Libby? Is Rachel right that we need a broader sort of... Yeah, so at the time the Education Commission came absolutely, you know, bang up with the right answers as far as I was concerned over this. And and they are, I mean, there is a terrible unfairness about the whole system. But, I mean, we have, the way we have since the great lockdown time, we the way we have messed around our young people, the schoolgirls, the A-level uh, schoolboys, the, the, the A-level group, and now, of course, these poor students who are unable to get degrees, they often just a handshake because nobody will mark their final dissertation, you know, because of that strike. I mean, we have absolutely messed them up. And speaking as a pampered boomer, I am ashamed at the way young people in education have been treated in the last few years. I, I hang my head. You know, anything one could do or vote to change this attitude of the sort of disposability of young people, especially the least privileged young people, you know, I, I would do it. Uh, Rachel, but any politician, as Gavin Williamson found, 
three years ago, is going to find it really difficult if uh, in a couple of weeks' time the story is lots of otherwise diligent and hardworking students have missed out on the university places they've been hoping for and have worked really hard for. Uh, you'll have parents up in arms. You know, this is affecting 100,000 people. Any mm. education secretary is going to find it quite difficult to withstand the political pressure to do what the government have done over the past couple of years, which is end up sort of correcting upwards again. And, you know, the prediction is a surge in appeals. I mean, politically, this is going to be very difficult for the government to manage, isn't it? Well, I think that just shows why there's a need for this broader reform, mm. because the system's completely broken. And if anything, the pandemic created a kind of reset moment because exams were cancelled for so long uh, and there was this kind of grade inflation. So it's a time to just step back and think, actually, what do our children need to learn? The things that they're learning at school aren't preparing them for the jobs that they're going to do in the future. It's a sort of rote learning tick box exercise, memory rather than, uh, you know, problem solving or creativity or originality. And it's bad for the economy and it's bad for children and for their mental health. And actually, really interestingly, um, the research that we did for the commission found that parents are really dissatisfied as well, that two-thirds of parents think that their education system isn't preparing their children either for life or for work. So actually, a brave politician who sees that bull by the horns and said, look, this is a mess, we're going to think again, and we're going to do what what's right for the children and for the country, I think would actually win praise in the end, even if it was involved some controversial decisions along the way. From what you've seen, Rachel, just briefly, do you think... Keir Starmer and Bridget Phillips and all those politicians, do you, do you get the sense they're thinking boldly about reform of the exam system? I think they are. Um, I think they may not say so before the election. Mm. That's what's really interesting is there's a caution about what should be in the manifesto. But I know that behind the scenes, they are looking at all these things. They promise to have a review of the curriculum and the assessment system if they win. Um, when uh, Alice Thompson and I interviewed Bridget Phillipson recently for the podcast, what I wish I'd known, she was very clear that there needed to be broad reform uh, and that the system needed to make, become much more relevant. Uh, so I think they won't necessarily set out the details in full before the election, but I think the direction of travel is, is pretty clear, actually. Uh, right. Now, I'm sure our columnist panel are nodding their heads to that one. That is, of course... As listeners of a certain age remember, the music to WWE, World Wrestling Entertainment. And Mark Zuckerberg, the Facebook founder, says he's ready today to enter the ring for a cage fight with Elon Musk, the owner of the social media platform formerly known as Twitter. Uh, the pair have agreed to the bout. They agreed to the bout in June uh, with proceeds going to a charity for veterans. Uh, but Zuckerberg now says Musk is yet to respond to his invitation for a bout on the 26th of this month. Gareth A. Davis is a boxing and MMA journalist and broadcaster. He joins us now. Gareth, who's your money on, Elon or Mark? Oh, good morning, Patrick. Um, <laughs> straight into my pick. Well, I'm probably going to go for um, Mark Zuckerberg, actually. He's 13 years younger at 39. He's, I think he's about a stone and a half lighter, but he is a jiu-jitsu practitioner, and I suspect that if he can get Musk to the mat, uh, he may well uh, submit him in a mixed martial arts fight. And I reckon his 
manner of victory would probably be something like an arm bar, or if I can call it this, a rear naked choke. And I can imagine Elon Musk tapping, but it really is um, a kind of bragging rights fight for the mm. big swinging egos of, of our planet, really. I mean, these two guys are emperors in a sense, if you look at what they do. And the weird thing about fight sports, you know, uh, as someone that's covered it a long time, is that, you know, look back into the history, as you'll be aware of, the, the emperors used to have um, their gladiators fighting coliseums. And this weirdly is uh, two emperors fighting um, over... It's a kind of a bragging rights fight in lots of ways. But I just wonder also whether, um, them having seen that um, we've, we've had a lot of major influences, mm. what some people are calling hijacking the fight sports scenario uh, to, to, to garner big numbers. Because, you know, you shout fight, fight, flight, fight in the playground and people will always flock to see it and rubberneck to see it. But um, I think it might well end up, if it does happen, as the most watched fight in history, maybe even the richest fight in history. Uh, Libby, will you be watching? No, no. Seven people have died in fully regulated MMA cage fights. Um, one or two, one of these two might die. I'm not sure which one I'd, I'd be gladder to get rid of. Um, I've just been reading the rules, by the way. But uh, if you want to be reassured, no headbutts, eye gouging, biting, spitting, fish hooking, face bars, hair pulling, or throws that aim your opponent's head to hit the canvas. No strikes to the spine. Sounds no fun at all, doesn't it? That was Libby Purvis and Rachel Sylvester. Remember, you can read both of them in The Times every week. Just go to thetimes.co.uk forward slash timesredbox and you get yourself a digital subscription. Introducing Wondersuite from Bluehost.com. Website creation is hard, but now with Bluehost, you can answer a few simple questions about your business and get a unique WordPress website or store right away. From there, you can customize your design, colors, and content. And Bluehost automatically helps you get found in search engines like Google and Bing. From step-by-step guidance to suggested plugins, Bluehost makes WordPress wonderful for everyone. Go to bluehost.com slash wondersuite. This episode of Politics Without the Boring Bits is brought to you by Luton Rising, owners of London Luton Airport, the UK's most socially impactful airport. Find out more at lutonrising.org.uk. You're listening to the Times Red Box Politics Podcast. Now it's time for this. The Big Thing on Times Radio. Now, how do you lose an unlosable election? Indeed, is there such a thing as an unlosable election? The latest YouGov polls have Labour 20 points clear of the Conservatives with near enough 12 months to go until polling day. Keir Starmer is keen to ensure his party doesn't get complacent, however. The Tories will never give up on power. That's not who they are. So no let up, no complacency. Fight for every vote. Yes, complacency is the dirtiest word in Labour HQ. And that is wise because it wouldn't be the first time a party with an enormous poll lead facing an unpopular rival has ended up with a shock defeat. Three elections are preoccupying people in Labour HQ. Uh, The general election in the UK in 1992, the US presidential election in 2016 and the Australian general election in 2019. We're going to be speaking about all of those in our big thing this morning. 
And I'll be joined throughout by our political commentator, Isabel Hardman. Morning, Isabel. Hello there, how are you doing? Very well, great to have you uh, in the depths of recess, uh, making our own news today. Uh, first question for you, Isabel. The polls, 20 points ahead for the Labour Party. Even a year ago, that would have been pretty implausible. Do you think uh, the Labour Party, one, believes those polls, and two, mean what they say when they say they're not complacent or they're already measuring the curtains? I mean, I think there's a split within the Labour Party. So, as you said, Keir Starmer is obsessed with the word complacency. And I think one of the, the reasons he is is that he's taken a lot of lessons from the 1992 election, which I'm sure we'll discuss in a bit more detail shortly, where Labour um, did think uh, that, that they were, um, to coin a phrase, all right. Um, and uh, when you then boil down through the front bench of the Labour Party today, you've got two groups. You've got one group who really think, you know, this is in the bag. This is this is going to be OK. Look at this useless bunch of Tories. They're exhausted. They need a spell in rehab, let alone a spell in opposition. We're going to walk this. Um, and then you've got the other group who think, actually, this poll is very, very soft. It's much more to do with people being, as that first group of articulated, fed up with the Tories who are knackered rather than excited and energised about, you know, the, the new Labour Party. And, you know, as Keir Starmer himself has said, uh, these days are not the things can only get better days of 1997. There's not that energy uh, in the country, but but a lot of Labour frontbenchers think there's not that energy around the Labour Party either, and that there's a huge amount more work to be done to make people excited about voting Labour, to actually make people comfortable and relaxed about voting Labour. So, so there is that split, and it often boils down really to um, the spending pledges that we see or we don't see uh, from the front bench, where you've got Rachel Reeves, who is very much of the we must not be complacent camp, uh, trying to mm. rein in the ambition of some of the other front benches who who really see um, the spending restraint at the moment as just being one of those sort of, um, you know, we're in holiday season, sort of pre-holiday diets uh, that you then go crazy once you're on holiday, uh, once they're in government. So there's, there is that kind of tension between uh, front benches. And you mentioned spending commitments in large part, the sort of psychology of the Labour Party on spending commitments and tax rises and that sort of thing going into an election, what people have in their minds is the memory of that Tory poster in 1992. Labour's tax bombshell, you pay 1,500 quid more uh, under a Labour government. So let's take a look at that election, a defeat that really did shock the pollsters here in the UK. That was seen basically as, as an unlosable election uh, for Neil Kinnock. And that's the one that keeps shadow cabinet ministers like Rachel Reeves and her deputy, Pat McFadden, the two most important people in the shadow cabinet, as you say, uh, up at night. Labour had, ahead of that election, on average, a seven-point lead for much of the build-up. But when I spoke to Neil Kinnock about it last year, he denied, despite that famous moment at the Sheffield rally, uh, as you said, Isabel, when he declared, we're all right, he denied that he was complacent. Did I go into the election expecting to win? The answer is no. My highest expectation at any stage, and that was in the first week or 10 days, was for a hung parliament with possibly us as the largest single party. But that was the maximum expectation I had. And as the campaign went on, uh, that faded somewhat. Uh, so that by the time we actually got the result, I was dismayed, obviously, uh, 
that's an understatement, but I wasn't surprised. Uh, in fact, I was devastated because of the effect that I thought it would have on the people of our country. Uh, but other than that, there was no real surprise. So not all right then, according to Neil Kinnock. But where did it all go wrong for Labour? I also spoke last year to Chris Patton, Lord Patner Barnes, who is credited with masterminding that shock win for John Major. And I just don't think that Labour was trusted with the economy. And smart Alec, as Peter Manderson might have been at the time, and, and producing a glossy campaign, it just didn't cut the ice with normal voters. I knew, I knew that we'd won the election when somebody came to me and said, look, I've just been out, out canvassing and people keep on saying to me, why aren't you producing lots of slick stuff about about the things that really matter, like taxes going up if, if Labour wins the election? And I thought, well, if that's what people are saying on the doorstep, they've actually got the point without us being slick in the way we presented. Isabel, do you think Labour have really learned the lessons of that defeat? I think they have. I think one of the things that's interesting uh, that they really continue to cling to, um, and and this is one of my own obsessions as well, is is the NHS, which was a big feature in the 1992 campaign with what was known as the War of Jennifer's Ear. Mm. Uh, It was a Labour broadcast about a girl who'd had to wait, I think it was a year, for um, uh, vents to be put in her ears uh, to treat glue ear, uh, which is quite a common childhood condition. Um, and this descended into a big fight about whether Labour were being honest, about whether Neil Kinnock was uh, telling a pack of lies. But the reason Labour did it was because they saw the NHS as being fertile election winning territory. And you still see the Labour Party retreating to the NHS as fertile election winning territory uh, whenever it feels that other things are going a bit better for the government. Um, and I think that the lesson from 92 is that actually the, the NHS, as salient as it is, doesn't win elections. It, it can you know, add to the impression, I think, of a, of a government that's, that's lost its way. Um, and it was certainly an ingredient in 1997 when you had Tony Blair saying, you know, we have 24 hours to, to save the NHS. But it's not the thing that clinches it. Uh, and, and I think that's a lesson that probably Labour still, still needs to, to learn. And the other thing, we're talking about, you know, the salience of issues during an election campaign, Chris Patton picked up on it there, is much will depend, the shape of the campaign will depend on whether the Tories can, ahead of the election, do what they did in 1992, which is essentially bring forward a big tax-cutting budget. You know, Jeremy Hunt and Rishi Sunak are hinting is probably too subtle a word. They're basically saying that's what they're going to do. Norman Lamont did that on the eve of the election. John Major then dissolved Parliament and the campaign was basically, well, would you like all of these tax cuts or, or would you not? I mean, I think we're going to see something similar to that if the economy is in decent enough shape or has improved this time next year, do you think, Isabel? Yeah, that's certainly, as you say, what the great clunking hints are from uh, from the top and what the demands are uh, throughout the Conservative party as well because what conservative MPs argue is that while voters are not happy they don't particularly think that the conservatives are making a a good fist of handling the economy they're still very anxious about the Labour Party and that was very much the um, one of the big factors in in the 1992 election was that Labour had gone through this terrible period through the 80s where they just appeared completely at odds with what voters were interested in and Kinnock was obviously part of that modernisation 
project, but he didn't take the Labour Party far enough for voters to feel comfortable uh, about backing it and taking it into government. Uh, and so what the Conservatives want to do is to say, look, you know, essentially you think we're bad but look at the other guys they're still not worth trusting uh, and here are some tax cuts to keep you comfortable i suspect we will see um echoes from the conservatives of, of what they tried to do in 97 unsuccessfully obviously uh, with the new labor new danger um posters the famous posters? demon eyes poster yeah yeah the, the scary eyes coming out of the uh, out of the purse uh, that sort of those sort of warnings that, that Keir Starmer is just desperate to put your taxes up as, as much as possible. Well, those are the lessons from 1992 that are ringing in the ears of uh, people in Labour HQ as Morgan McSweeney, Keir's uh, campaign director, uh, urges them against complacency, I'm sure. Uh, what are the lessons can they draw from history, the Labour Party? And are they really... Uh, are they really taking them to heart? That's the question we're going to consider. We're looking at the unlosable elections that may spell disaster for the Labour Party next year. And Neil Kinnock, who of course lost that unlosable election in 1992, is far from the only politician to lose an election that appeared to be in the bag. In 2016, Hillary Clinton was widely expected to stroll into the White House given the unpopularity and lack of political experience of her divisive opponent, Donald Trump. But as we know, the polls and predictions got it wrong with the Republican candidate flipping key states in his favour. This is not the outcome we wanted or we worked so hard for. And I'm sorry that we did not win this election for the values we share and the vision we hold for our country. I know how disappointed you feel because I feel it too. This is painful and it will be for a long time. We have seen that our nation is more deeply divided than we thought. But I still believe in America, and I always will. That was Corey Dukes, former state director for the Clinton campaign. Oh, pardon me, that was Hillary Clinton herself. Now we're going to hear from Corey Dukes, state director for the Clinton campaign in Pennsylvania, one of the states that unexpectedly voted for Trump in 2016. He is now a policy advocate for Protect Democracy, a group dedicated to defeating authoritarianism. I spoke to him earlier and I asked him if it's right to assume people on the Clinton campaign expected they were going to beat Donald Trump easily. By the time our team was was constructed, it was clear that then-candidate Trump um, posed a serious threat electorally. So um, I think even though we were leading in the polls, um, the public polling, um, and even, frankly, in, in some internal polling until very late in the campaign, I don't think that there was an assumption that it was a, a fait accompli or that the race was ever um, a done deal. And Pennsylvania... For British listeners who might not be familiar, has some similarities sort of economically, socially with key seats that the Labour Party and the Conservative Party are focusing on here, which is to say uh, much of the state is sort of deindustrialized. you know, that sort of thing, the sort of old uh, industrial uh, mining towns. Uh, and, and that became Trump country in the election, didn't it? It did. It did. And, and, and you know, I think we had an inability to, to properly respond to and, and maybe in some cases properly recognize the, the traction that Trump was gaining in these areas that you describe um, in a state like Pennsylvania, which has large rural areas and, and, and large areas of previously booming industrial areas that, that, that may have fallen on harder times. So we saw him have an ability to appeal to 
and turn out to the polls large kind of populations of new voters or voters who are infrequent voters um, who, who, who were particularly uh, taken by his brand of populism. It's interesting because you mentioned um, Trump's ability to connect with those sorts of voters. Keir Starmer, the leader of the Labour Party here, has spent a lot of his three years as Labour leader trying to rebuild the Labour Party's relationship with those voters, despite the fact he himself is what you might reductively call um, a London liberal in the same way that I imagine lots of people associate Hillary Clinton with, you know, with DC and, and, and New York and not necessarily the sorts of places that proved so decisive in, in that election. Sure, but I, I'm not sure anyone uh, associates uh, Donald Trump with mm. um, where other than Manhattan either, um, or 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 his 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 various estates around the country. So you know, I do think that um, one thing that we saw was again this brand of populism that that frankly tinges towards authoritarianism um, had a much larger audience than we anticipated, and I think that one maybe instructive piece that applies to the current situation in the UK is is it's not enough just to be an alternative to a bad candidate. You have to offer a vision for how you are going to serve these seats and these populations to provide them an affirmative case um, to support your candidacy and your party. Do you think that's something you struggle to do in Pennsylvania? Um, I think that we lost by what, 45,000 votes out mm. of maybe out of nearly 6 million votes cast. So the margins were very, very tight. I think that we may have tried to draw bright distinctions between the ideals and the vision of Secretary Clinton and, and something that we thought was uniquely dangerous in Donald Trump. Um, but I'm not sure that we did it consistently enough. And, and obviously, it did not gain sufficient traction um, to provide us the margins that we needed in places like Pennsylvania, Arizona, Michigan, other similar states across the country. And as you say, the margins were were very, very tight. And had you know Trump energized a few thousand fewer voters or if your campaign energised a few thousand more, we might be having a very, very difficult conversation. You know, and how much how much of that is key, sort of identifying your vote, getting it out? I mean, I imagine you did that in Pennsylvania, but as you say, the problem was Trump turned out a lot of first-time habitual non-voters, didn't he? He did, and, you know, another, another piece of... Uh... Uh, the standard principle or basic rule here is that all politics are local. Sometimes we try to nationalize races, we try to nationalize our politics, but there is a local appeal, there is a, a local choice happening between two candidates or two parties. And I feel like uh, we obviously did not do an adequate job of turning out enough of our supporters to offset the surge in new and infrequent voters that, that the Trump uh, campaign was able to turn out with their message. There's a truism in British politics. I don't know whether it's the same in, in US politics, that campaigns don't really matter, that people have basically made up their minds at the outset of a campaign and very little that happens during a campaign can shift it. And the Labour Party, given that they're 20, 25 points ahead in some opinion polls here, will certainly be hoping that's true. I mean, would you say that's naive? Because there were certainly turning points during the campaign. The one people uh, refer to is, of course, the FBI announcing very close to polling day that uh, Secretary Clinton's emails, uh, you know, were going to be investigated again or that they found new emails on Anthony Weiner's uh, computer. Would you say, you know, what happens during a campaign can be decisive? Was that your experience or is this sort of second order marginal stuff? 
Oh, no, no, most definitely. Um, you know, in the States, obviously, and, and you've alluded to it a couple of times now, our elections are in November. And we we have the, the concept of an October surprise where in the days or weeks before the election, something unforeseen happens that's out of control of the candidates and the parties that might have a major bearing on the outcome of the election. You mentioned the Access Hollywood tape from early October of 2016. The James Comey letter and press conference was actually October 28th, 2016. And, and if you'll indulge me, um, I think this is illustrative. On that day, Day, I was traveling with former President Bill Clinton across Pennsylvania. He was doing some some get out the vote uh, stops. And we started the day in Western Pennsylvania, which is a former steel town or a, a steel town that has fallen on harder times, but has a, a real affection and residual well of support for, for President Clinton. So we started the day and we, you could feel the wind behind our sails. Like mm. It was a very positive morning. And we got on the plane to fly across the state to the eastern part of Pennsylvania to the Lehigh Valley. Um, and while we were on the tarmac, the press conference from, from then FBI Director James Comey took place and we went wheels up. We flew for maybe 45 minutes. Um, we landed in the Lehigh Valley and, and the tone of the press corps that was with us was different. It was clear that something had changed in the race. And this was, I believe, like you know, nine to 10 days before election day. And it had a great bearing on the on the outcome of the race. And if, if I may, what do the Democrats need to do next year to make sure there isn't another uh, un- unexpected or, or uh, you know, unpleasant defeat to President Trump? <laughs> well, I work for a nonpartisan nonprofit, and I'm 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 retired from uh, from electoral <laughs> politics. So, but I do think we've learned from across the world that um, the authoritarian threat doesn't die easily. In our country, um, we are unfortunately faced with a former president and a current candidate who has tried to lead us down that path, and we are we are. We at, at Protect Democracy are convinced and on guard against the second instance of an authoritarian president because the. The second round um, is always more efficient and more harmful than the first round. That was Corey Jukes, former state director for the Hillary Clinton campaign in Pennsylvania, one of the states that unexpectedly voted for Donald Trump in 2016. And speaking of shock defeats, or rather uh, expected victories, England have just gone through in the Women's World Cup, beating Nigeria 4-2 on penalties. Uh, So there's some good news for you this morning. Uh, Now, to Australia. In 2019, Bill Shorten, then leader of the Australian Labour Party, was the sure victor of that year's federal elections. That was according to the opinion polls, political pundits and betting markets. But to everyone's surprise, the Scott Morrison-led Liberal National Coalition secured another three years in government. Bill Shorten resigned as leader of the Labour Party, after accepting defeat. I know that you're all hurting, and I am too. Gee, I wish we could have formed a government for these Australians on this evening. I wish we could have won for the true believers, for our brothers and sisters and the mighty trade union movement. I wish, I wish we could have done it for Bob. That was Bill Shorten resigning as leader of the Australian Labour Party after accepting defeat in the 2019 election. Uh, Ryan Little was his chief of staff. He joins me now. Uh, Hello, Ryan. Hello, Patrick. How are you? Very well. Thanks for joining us. And I hope that clip wasn't too traumatic to listen to. (laughs) Talk, talk, Talk us through what it was like the moment it became clear that the the polls were wrong and that Labour was going to lose. You know, just how how surprising was that? Well, it was, it was quite surprising. I mean, I don't think anybody ever took it for granted. Certainly Bill didn't and certainly I didn't. But 
you know, we had a consistent sort of performance over the previous sort of year. We kept announcing sort of new policies um, and the polls kept uh, falling into our favour. Um, and then we had a sort of a, a difficult campaign where we, we'd, we'd inadvertently or inadvertently, we quite, quite deliberately as well in some respects, made ourselves quite a large target. We had a, quite a, a significant sort of policy offering because all the feedback and the research and the polling that we had showed that that's what people wanted. They wanted a uh, they, they wanted a break from the, you know, what the research was showing us was the chaos of this unity of the third parties and onto a sort of a fresh approach and a new vision. So that's what we sort of kept offering. And then that meant it was quite right for a, a scare campaign, a fear campaign. And the um, the votes certainly on election night didn't fall in the seats that we needed them to be. You know, and you talk about your campaign becoming a target for a scare campaign from the Liberals. What listeners may not know is that the very person who ran Boris Johnson's campaign in 2019 and will likely run the campaign for the Conservatives in 2024. Isaac Levido, a protégé of Linton Crosby, who's a name that will be familiar to listeners as, you know, the uh, the Wizard of Oz, as Tories know him over here. He ran that campaign against Bill Shorten too. Yep, yep that's right. And you can see, I mean, you know, my understanding and, and, and interest in insights into UK politics certainly isn't as sharp as yours, Patrick, but from a sort of a uh, from reading from afar, you can see the same sort of themes starting to develop. You know, we had during um uh, during the 2019 campaign here, we had a focus on electric vehicles, which um, Scott Morris and the the Conservative or the Conservative Prime Minister uh, said on live television repeatedly that um it was going to end the weekend for Australians. Now, um, media reported that um, polis polis um, as it was uh, without any sort of critical analysis, um, and that devastated us. I mean, just this idea, this absolute rubbish that was out there without any sort of critical analysis um it, it, it carried through and that really hurt us there was also an issue with the reliability or otherwise of the opinion polling which suggested you were going to win but the reality didn't quite match the data yeah that's right and so basically across the board you know we had consistent opinion polling right up until what well, was up at sort of 56 44 two-party preferred for a lot of um the time before 2019 election um, and even the night before, you know, there's a tradition in Australia that there's a big, the Australian newspaper here does a big news poll that splashes into the papers on on election day on Saturday, but it's ahead 51.5 to 48.5. And so the political editor of the, of the newspaper called me and said, congratulations the night before. Um, and it turned out that, you know, obviously that was a spread across various sort of states and more national than in the seats that we needed to win. So we found that in seats that were sort of a safe Labor seats, um, you know, our, um, our, our vote there went up, which was pretty unhelpful in the scheme of things. Uh, and in the marginal seats that we needed to win, we just couldn't get there. And if you could offer one piece of advice to your sister party in Britain ahead of an election that does bear some resemblance to the one you fought in 2019, what would it be? One of the things which I think is quite similar, Patrick, is that um, when Scott Morrison here uh, became uh, leader, he you know, knocked off the previous prime minister in the same way that Rishi Sunak um, knocked off Liz Truss. Um, and Morrison here was able to recreate himself as a, you know, as, as, as different from the Conservative Party here, even went to the extent of calling his own party a bunch of Muppets because he wanted to differentiate himself that much from the chaos and the sort of dysfunction of, pre, of, of the previous years. So... Anything the party can do to sort of bolt uh, Rishi Sunak to the history of the chaos with trust, um, uh, it's free the May, uh, et cetera. Um, not only does it remind people of the chaos of dysfunction and remove his ability to sort of recreate himself, it reminds people of how long they've been in power. Mm. Um, and one of the devices that we had down here, we, we thought of the 
we call it the, and the Mount Rushmore of, of, I'll say, morons for the purpose of your audience. Um, and we had a billboard. We just basically had the, the, the five faces of the various sort of leaders lined up and we put that all over the country. And that was really effective. And so far as painting that sort of picture of the dysfunction over those years. Well, advice that the Labour Party are taking to heart. I know from Ryan Little, Chief of Staff to Bill Shorten, who lost unexpectedly Australia's federal election in 2019. That's what we got time for on today's podcast. Remember, I'll be back tomorrow. And don't forget to share, subscribe, like and follow wherever you get your podcast from. <laughs>